This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, truth, fiction and outright absurdity. More strange author mysteries. (laughs) <laughs> so um this has got uh, a bit of a story to it but um we are taking a little sort of sidestep away from the intricacies of writing and we're going to look at writers themselves um since to be fair we can be a bit of an odd bunch <laughs> yeah definitely um our last episode was supposed to be light but i fear we may have stripped we sort of flirted with being contentious in a couple of not that we intended to but it's nice to do some lighter episodes and sometimes I find looking at a right you know an author's sort of life particularly if they're already dead yeah. <laughs> because a you can't offend anyone and b also you get the, the tableau of the whole as it were yeah. um, can be as interesting as looking at their books mm-hmm. um, a while back we looked at four authors and the mysteries in their lives or deaths mm-hmm. so go and check that episode out if you haven't already yes and we're gonna take a look at four more today Yes. Um, Now, um, while this is entertaining and hopefully educational, uh, we do add the caveat that no one truly knows the mind of another. And it's impossible to tell for certain why someone acted in a specific way or why events transpired in the way that they did. Because we just don't have omniscient vision. We cannot see all of the moving parts. So anything that we put forward here is based on uh, knowledge, which, you know, facts as we have found them. Um, There may be things that have been missed. There may be... um, uh, ideas that we haven't considered because it's not arisen Um, and basically all of the conclusions are drawn from that um, but are not shouldn't be taken as the 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 solid fact of foundation Uh, we're merely doing our best (laughs) yeah absolutely and you know in in some of these instances i've read biographies of of the authors in question Um, I've, i've read through articles and things uh, but once again, you don't really know somebody's life unless you're living it. So, um, And quite frankly, I'm not trying to give four people's life, entire lives here. Mm-hmm. I'm just noticing, noting the things rather that that struck me as unusual or mm-hmm. sort of a piquant in a way. So uh, that's where we're going with this. Yeah. So, uh, Jules, why don't you start us off? Uh, with our first author of the day, uh, Virginia Andrews, um, the author who was most prolific after her death. Yes, um, this is going to take some interesting twists and turns. Now, um, for those of you who were, you know, girls of my generation, probably some boys as well, or anyone else, But certainly in the 80s and 90s, reading Flowers in the Attic, that scandalous book, was a sort of schoolgirl rite of passage. Mm. And oddly enough, I discovered the other day from being on BookTok that it still is. And I was like astounded that this was still out there because in a lot of ways, Flowers in the Attic is a product of its time. It was written in 1971, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's not a steamy read, but it's kind of a saucy read in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, it pushes the envelope on 
family drama, family scandal. It's vaguely gothic. It's set in a sort of vague, quite gothic mansion. There's all these family secrets and things. Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, the moment you, you put an attic in something, there's <laughs> it's a gothic right weird there the ugly head, like, ooh, an attic, what can I put in there? Um. <laughs> Absolutely. And I will get onto Virginia Andrews in a minute, but Flowers in the Attic kind of is based apparently on a true story, mm-hmm. something that happened to an acquaintance of the author him and his two siblings. Now, in the book, there are four children, uh, an older brother, an older sister, and a pair of twins, who are the youngest. And there's something strange between their mother and father. There's a secret that they can't really quite put their finger on, but everyone's really happy. And then the father dies in an accident. And the mother desperately wants to reconnect with her original family, who she's estranged from, mm-hmm. in order to get hold of the great wealth of the, the Dollinganger family. And her mother says, yes, okay, you can come back home and you can move back in, etc. But only if your father doesn't know you've had any children. So they put the four children in the attic which is a huge, you know, converted attic with bedrooms. Well, I say converted, it's got a bedroom and then there's a door into the actual attic themselves. Mm-hmm. And their mother says it's only going to be for a few days. As the book progresses, you realise it's actually going to be like something like three to five years. Oh, great. <laughs> and those children grow up in that attic. And um, you know what? It's, just, it's clearly designed to be a sensational read in the old term of sensational, where you're kind of going through all these emotional changes and mm-hmm. sort of the gasp moments, etc. Um, and I don't know, it looks at incest, it looks at um, familial abuse, it looks at, you know, there's murder. It, it's a, a very gothic, gothic novel, if you see what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not flirting with the gothic, that's just, that's diving straight into bed with the gothic. <laughs> It's trying to out-gothic the gothic. <laughs> Even the gothic is like, look, I'm into some weird stuff, but you are really You're pushing it crazy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I have to say, when I read it, I did really enjoy it. Even though, as I was reading it, I was going, this is wrong, this is just wrong. And yet, I'm really enjoying it. I can't put the book down. <laughs> and I even read some of the books that came after it, because there's a massive, long... Dollinganger family series and mm-hmm. each book is really really bad in that gothic-y sort of this is wrong way Yeah, <laughs> but they're incredibly compulsive reads so um, so what's really interesting in a way is that the odd juxtaposition between the author and the sensationalist book she wrote now Virginia Andrews um, as uh, at school herself mm-hmm. suffered a fall on the school steps and she seriously injured her back. Um, the corrective surgery she had to you know, sort out these injuries ended up developing into crippling arthritis, which meant she had to use her crutches and her wheelchair. So she lived quite a secluded life and didn't get out a great deal. Mm. Um, but she was very well educated and clearly an amazing inner life, as it were. Yeah great imagination and she became a professional painter and she lived with her mother until her mother died um and then 
she got to the 70s when I think she was in her maybe mid 50s and she she started writing flowers in the attic and the first time she sent it out on submission she was told well you know you need you need to somehow smut or steam this up a little bit mm-hmm. it won't sell as is so she did she really took that challenge and, and went with it in a way that makes you go but I can't stop I can't look away it's 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 it's, <laughs> it's the car crash of books yes and it's, it's in you know it's sold millions millions and millions um and she wrote more books in the series and she had ideas for others and she wrote notes of things now what's <laughs> what's really interesting here is the fact that unfortunately she became quite unwell and then she died mm-hmm. and at that point i think only three of her books had come out so right. two of the Dollenganger series and one from another family gothicy series um and her publishers hushed it up right okay simon and schuster you know now if you had a, a an author who sold those millions of books and made that much money and became independently wealthy you know for a fact that if they died suddenly then we'd hear about it mm-hmm. but but back in the sort of late 70s the simon and schuster were kind of like well, i'm not going to tell anyone are you no because her name is what's really selling stuff right now. Right. And they, the family, in collusion with Simon & Schuster, hired somebody to finish off her books. I mean, a couple of them were practically hers. They just needed someone to go through them. Right. And they kept this ghostwriter quiet. And this ghostwriter, a man, um, <laughs> uh, went by the name of V.C. Andrews, basically, they they kept up the idea that Virginia Andrews was still alive for ages, way up, up until about 1998, I think. So for like 15 to 20 years after her death, Simon and Schuster hid the fact that their, their champion thoroughbred author was actually dead and it was a man who'd been brought <laughs> in as a ghostwriter <laughs> to write wow. all these books she'd had ideas for. A lot of people felt quite conflicted when that came out. In eventually, it had to come out. Um, I yeah. think there were legal ramifications. Um, I think there might have been a huge lawsuit as well because they didn't really have the right to, you know, conceal the fact that she died and there were issues with her estate and various other things, which I won't go into. Yeah. Um, people felt conflicted because they'd been loving all these slightly smutty gothic books um, and then they realised that they weren't reading these books written by a woman they were reading these books he'd written by written by a man strange mm-hmm. enough he he was very good at aping her style he got her books he knew what the publishers wanted and he kept churning them out and he wrote at fantastic speed just like virginia andrews had mm-hmm. um and i i mean the number of books by vc andrews now is i don't know it, it's in the double digits easily there's, there's 20 or more of them and they've all sold really really well um and it, I'm afraid I, I didn't know this myself for quite a long time. And I was both amused and a little bit amazed that they got away with this for about 20 years, this concealing her death and then getting someone in to write these books for her. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a whole <laughs> other level, to be fair. <laughs> it's like we say, yeah, writing's a business, publishing's a business, etc., etc. And, and then... And then you realise the lengths that a publisher will go to to keep making money. And it's like, technically that wasn't very honest. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't seem to have harmed her sales, though. 
I'm glad of that at least, but I mean... <laughs> I'm not sure that that's, there's much... That's an incredible story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in in terms of content for her books, I don't think they would get picked up and published nowadays because the content would be considered highly problematic. Mm. Or they'd get picked up and they'd be rebranded as dark romance. Yeah. Um, maybe they wouldn't be published by publishers, but they would get... Uh, rebranded and published independently as dark romance there is a huge huge market for dark romance and and in the sense of where you have this really intense connection between two people in what is effectively a dysfunctioning dysfunctional relationship and you know romance readers who like that specific niche absolutely lap it up they love it i don't entirely get it myself and I kind of mm. liked the the gothic twist that Virginia Andrews put on her initial books. I mean, I haven't read all of them. I haven't even read all of the Dollanganger series. Um, but I have to say, to see so many sort of um, 18 to 22-year-olds on BookTok saying, oh, I've just read Flowers in the Attic. Oh, my God. I can't unsee what I've seen. And I'm like, yeah, that's the reaction I had at 14. Um, I'm amazed these books are still going around the same groups of people. <laughs> It kind of made me want to go back and revisit it, except I know it will be really, really bad and I'll hate myself. (laughs) But maybe I will. (laughs) Yes, I I mean, (laughs) there are some variables there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It's the... Um, okay, I mean, to be fair, the books have been out for decades, so spoiler alert, the big secret between the mother and the father is that the mother is the niece of the father and they just met and they fell in love in this really sort of elite wealthy family so they were already Dollengangers so the children are you know children of an incestuous relationship which was consensual Um, and then that's why they were concealed in the attic because you know they they could not tell the the grandfather that they existed Um, the fact that the mother would conceal her four children like that and then the grandmother starts poisoning them and all sorts and then there's an incestuous relationship between the two teenagers who are just trapped in the attic together so yeah that book really doubles down on the incest just to warn you guys yes i mean okay well wow um Um, i've never encountered it i'm not gonna lie I, I have never encountered it, and now I am morbidly curious. <laughs> I think that's the thing. It was obviously not approved reading material at the convent, so people used to have it sort of stuck in the covers of, of the, the approved school curriculum reading books and religious studies and things. And they'd be reading that, and they'd be reading Chili Cooper's Riders and things as well. <laughs> Basically, teenage girls will get their hands on smut some way or another. Yeah. <sighs> okay all right let's uh jump on to the next author shall we yes <laughs> i mean not physically <laughs> uh but <laughs> whew. uh no so we are going to now have a quick look at the sensational life of uh wilkie collins yeah um i've I've got a a special place in my heart for Wilkie Collins, even though there are times when I've read his books and given him a bit of side eye. But 
We have to bear in mind that Wilkie Collins was born in 1824 and, you know, the books he wrote were kind of obviously under the selection pressures of the Victorian public at the time. Um, yes. But anyway, he went on to write highly popular sensation novels. So again, kind of in the same vein, they were precursors, I guess, to Virginia Andrews' work in that respect, where mm-hmm. you have exciting events happening and they were designed to elicit strong emotion and not necessarily positive strong emotion either. Um, He was a contemporary of Charles Dickens and in fact they were very close friends. When Collins found out that Charles Dickens had died he was incredibly upset by this. He he was even you know quite depressed for several months because he'd lost his friend. Yeah. Uh, I have to say at this point I did consider adding Charles Dickens to the list but Honestly, there's so much we could talk about with Charles Dickens, he almost deserves his own episode. Yeah. Um, anyway, so sensation novels were the precursor to the modern detective novel. Um, Collins, when he wrote The Moonstone and The Woman in White, can be argued to have written the first detective novel with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and later Agatha Christie refining the form. And I think, you know, that's that's a fair way of looking at things. He doesn't really have a full-on detective character in either the... Well, he has a detective in the Moonstone. Yeah. Um, but it's not really the detective who's necessarily solving things. He's kind of an incidental character. Uh, but it, this whole process of following clues and determining motives and actions and what really happened and, you know, changes of consciousness and things, all the stuff that you kind of see in much more detail in the Sherlock Holmes books, for example, all kind of started mm. with the Moonstone. Um, yeah. And the woman in white is another case in point in the sense that, you know, there's a big mystery to be solved. Although, again, there's no real detective. It's just a, two people who have been thrown together doing the very best they can to work out what the hell's happened uh, yeah. to this woman they both love. <clears throat> um, I will mention here, Collins's treatment of his female characters because it's not a book I've read but there was a later book after The Woman in White where he's actually looking at at the character of the fallen woman in Victorian society and Mm. and not just someone who happens to have sex outside of wedlock but someone who worked as a prostitute and has sort of very timorously suggested in that book that maybe the women who are pushed into this kind of career or even those who fall inverted commas and then find themselves in such straitened circumstances that that, that's the only career they can pursue um maybe they don't deserve to be cast out of society maybe they do deserve to be treated as people yeah um which was oddly oddly open-minded for a man of the time I mean, bear in mind that this was one of the worst sex trafficking times in Victorian... Um, sorry, one of the worst times for basically sex trafficking um, in the 1900s, um, if you consider mm. London. For every man living in London, and there was a population disparity, which we'll get into a bit later, there were 10 working female prostitutes, and some of them had kind of fallen into it, and some of them had been you know, moving away from the country and not really understanding what the city was like. And they were basically kidnapped off the streets in London and forced into it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was a thriving enterprise because all these Victorian sort of, you know, semi-wealthy or wealthy gentlemen were were keeping it going. Um, It's a really fascinating and 
quite insalubrious topic if you if you want to deep dive into the dark Victorian underbelly of the time. Yeah. <laughs> but an awful lot of those women were not there because they wanted to be there, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I will argue that he has a strangely progressive attitude towards sex, marriage and women's bodily autonomy for mm. a man of his time and again it's something that really comes up in the woman in white if you rem- bear in mind that between 1066 and around 1871 women could not legally own property yes that's how long it took her took for us to get the women's property act back yeah uh, which is which appalling a pretty yeah that's that's horrific literally <laughs> it's like thank you very much normans a thousand years thank you <laughs> you bastards <laughs> I mean obviously women did hold and manage property and stuff in between but it was very difficult um, and basically if you were getting married in Victorian times then everything you owned your dowry everything that went with you now belonged to your husband so theoretically he could marry you and then he could put you out on the street and you would have no recourse obviously that's quite an extreme thing to do um, mm-hmm. He could also keep the children. You did not have automatic rights to your own children. Yes. And it's all something that comes up in, obviously, things like the Tenant of Wildfell Hall, etc. In The Woman in White, Colin's very, you know, articulately and sympathetically argues that not enough thought was given to the marriage contracts of women who were, you know, they'd, they'd deliberately been sequestered so they had little little knowledge of men kind of thing or the fact that people might be out to swindle them for their fortunes and they weren't given the knowledge to argue their their own legal contractual requirements themselves so it fell to their fathers if they didn't have a father or a brother or an uncle or someone who's willing to do it for them they were really screwed literally yeah absolutely um (laughs) I don't want to kind of <laughs> jump, sort of take us off the kind of the, the track that we're on. But um, if you're interested in kind of seeing this, it's a great idea to also have a look at some other kind of uh, mysteries, ghost stories and things like that, which were written in the era. Speculative fiction in particular tended to be the one, tended to be the kind of fiction that was sort of saying, hold on a second, this isn't quite right. Um, and if you want other books written around sort of, between 1800s to the 1900s um the turn of the screw uh the yellow wallpaper um both of those also kind of raise the issue of kind of the management of women's lives um and one could argue sympathetically point out how that can drive women to extremes yeah absolutely um okay Willie Collins was also considered to be somewhat scandalous because he disliked the institution of marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Which is odd because he effectively had two wives at the same time and also two sets of children. And apparently they all knew about each other and came to an understanding even though he was basically running two separate households. So (laughs) basically in 1858, Collins began living without marrying a widow named Caroline Graves and her daughter Harriet. Um, Caroline came from quite a humble family and she'd married very young and had a child and then been widowed, um, as happened at the time. Um, And basically, 
Collins very much considered little Harriet his whom you know he had a pet name for he called her Carrie he considered her his own daughter even though he hadn't fathered her and he provided mm. for her education and basically they lived together unmarried for the rest of Collins life apart from one little separation um so you know he was dedicated to Caroline and Harriet can as I said considered them his family Caroline mm. wanted to marry Collins and he wasn't he's was like I just don't believe in marriage so I can't go through with that you know I'm I'm with you that's it but I can't do the marriage thing because again all this unequalness this this non-even handedness when it came to women and how they, they lost agency in marriage and things kind of played on him and the fact yeah. that it perhaps wasn't fair the other way because the responsibility assumed by the man was also somewhat unfair yeah um so she left him while he was writing the moonstone and apparently he was kind of a bitch at the time because he was having a massive attack of gout which obviously didn't make him great to live with no so she married a younger man in this time called joseph klaus so completely turning the institution of man goes off with younger model on its head uh, caroline left collins who was a very successful and wealthy writer by this time to go off with a younger man of, of no great renown um, but after two years, she would return to Wilkie Collins. In 1868, Collins met Martha Rudd in Norfolk and began a liaison with her. She was just 19 years old at the time. And a lot of people are going to be going, oh, the age gap. And it's like, well, yes, but it was also Victorian times and she was considered an adult. So I'm sorry, but that's the mm. way it was. Um, eventually, she moved to London to be closer to him. Uh, they had a daughter, she was back born in 1869, and a second daughter, Harriet Constance. So he had two daughters, effectively, called Harriet, in 1871. And, <laughs> I just really like the name. Yeah, really uh. nice <laughs> Didn't use it in his books, though. And a son, William Charles, in 1874. So he had three children with her. Uh, when he was with Martha, Collins assumed the name William Dawson, and she and their children used the last name of Dawson themselves, even though they never married or anything. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so for the last 20 years, but by this point, Wilkie Collins was back together with Caroline Graves, who was now Caroline Clow, right. um, because she, she'd left Joseph Clow. Obviously, the younger mm -hmm. man wasn't all he was cracked up to be. And for the last 20 years of his life, Collins divided his time between Caroline, who lived with him at his home, and Martha, who lived sort of a few houses down. <laughs> <laughs> so they knew about each other, and I think they just came to a sort of amicable accord of, we're just going to pretend we don't know. Which is really unusual for a Victorian gentleman, let me say. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, a Victorian gentleman, it wouldn't have been unusual for him to have a prostitute, or, you know, someone on the side, no. um, who everyone just pretended wasn't a thing, but treating that person as a wife basically being married to two people even if not by law by by common law emotion. basically because he was living with yeah. them both yeah that that's very peculiar yes huh i did not know that about wealthy collins it's going to completely change the way that i approach his books now <laughs> yeah i i felt exactly the same um there is a you know wilkie collins a life of sensation which you know it's a biography of his life which is pretty good and i recommend if people are interested in more of the more of the gory details right okay 
Okay, let's move on to our third author, The Man Out of Time. And I don't mean he was late, I mean he was sort of like really born in the wrong era. Yeah, and we also don't mean he was time travelling, though, you know, who knows? Although I like that <laughs> idea. I don't have all the facts. I really like that I want that. Anyway, we're talking about Thomas Hardy. <laughs> now, Mr. Hardy. Um, okay, so. Uh, Thomas Hardy came from relatively humble origins. He was actually born um, in Upper uh, Brockhampton, which is a village to the east of Dorchester in Dorset, for those who know the area. He was born in uh, 1840. Now, his father was a stonemason. However, his mother, Jemima, was very well read and she educated the young Thomas himself and essentially instilled in him a love of literature from a very early age. Um, so at about eight years old, he went off to Brockhampton Village School and he then later went to the Dorchester Academy for Young Gentlemen, where he learned Latin and demonstrated high academic potential. This is already kind of, we're seeing sort of something a little bit unusual here. Um, you know, we're seeing his clear intelligence and sort of elevation through education. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, his family couldn't afford to send him to university. So his education had to end when he was 16, which, again, was still an incredible achievement for non-gentry at that time. Um, again, it's young gentlemen. They didn't just mean men. It was mostly gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, and... After that, he apprenticed to an architect. Um, there are actually several buildings around Dorset, which Hardy actually either worked on or designed outright. Um, fun fact. Um, so if you want to go on a tour of Dorset, <laughs> look for Hardy's work. Um, eventually, he did manage to get admitted to King's College in London based on uh, scholarly merit, but he never felt comfortable there due to acute consciousness of the class division which you know we think of class division at the moment it's it's a big thing but at the time especially it would have been huge um and it was something which did plague him for the rest of his life yeah i mean unfortunately. Uh, talking about it the class division being huge at that time in order to cross that divide you had to be really exceptional, genuinely really exceptional. You, and not just make money and a lot of money, more even than probably the, the local lords had at that time or the local yeah. gentry farmers and things had at that time. Um, but you had this constant background noise of your social climbing and you don't know your proper place. What are you looking at? You're, you're from a working class family. You know, yes, that, that um, constant being pushed down whilst also being pulled. Because if you ended up with money, uh, people who were of the gentry but who didn't have a lot of money would kind of simultaneously try to leech off of you whilst also degrading you, yeah, which was a, a real issue. It was a pretty despicable system. Yes. I mean, Hardy was a realist writer in the style of George Eliot. So, I mean, if you've read things like Mill on the Floss, um, mm -hmm. they can all be pretty bleak. I mean, his novels are, quite frankly, pretty depressing, if not harrowing to a modern audience. Yeah. Um, um, 
Yeah, I mean, none of them have an unmitigated happy ending. <laughs> no, um, Under the Greenwood Tree probably comes closest, but I mean, even A Pair of Blue Eyes, which was kind of a homage to the great love of his life and wife, yeah. um, is not the happiest of books. Yeah. Um, but I mean, his books and, and his poetry were full of exquisite descriptions of rural Dorset, and something that he really did was capture snapshots of Victorian rural life. Um, now, I just want to kind of do a little caveat here to really show why this is so important, because during the Victorian period, we had something called the rural fantasy emerging. Um, as massive urbanization kind of took over and more people were drawn into the city, um, there was this kind of national crisis of identity. Uh, a lot of, and it's where the folklore stuff all came from, a lot of people sort of saying, we need to kind of find the past, we need to reconnect with our identities, our sense of nationality and stuff like that. And the way that they said, well, how do we do that? We look to the rural community because they they basically haven't moved forward as fast as us. They're still a little bit more in the past. Um, so they still have this access. So they went into the rural communities, they took folk tales and stuff like that. Um, but it was very doctored. And as people kind of were shoved into cities and it was smoky and dangerous and loud, there was this kind of, oh, but to be in the countryside, oh, the countryside is wonderful. And they kind of painted these pictures of what rural life was like, and it was idyllic. Um, you know, slow towns, everyone getting on together. And one of the big aspects of that was that they essentially stopped looking at rural communities as working communities um, with a lot of the imagery doctored by sort of gentry um, or very wealthy middle class going to the country to country estates or things like that and being able to enjoy the country without actually looking at the reality of what farm like was farm life was like what working uh, rural communities actually had to go through the dangers the horrors the sickness all of that it was kind of swept away and so here comes hardy with his miserable <laughs> his miserable works um showing this you know the beauty of the rural world but also the cruel and harsh reality because he loved the countryside you know we can see it overflowing in the page but it is you know his writing is tempered with the bitterness you know he felt towards the enclosure act and and the advent of the industrial revolution and the way of life which had run on largely undisturbed for hundreds of years now kind of being changed, forgotten, rewritten. Yeah. I mean, even the Dorset dialect was dying out at that point. Um, and, you know, it was taking a lot of living close to the land wisdom with it. Yeah, and <clears throat> I'll add on to that point the fact that the actual Dorset dialect was still alive in certain parts, basically the most rural parts of Dorset, really out into the sticks where, you know, the bus only comes once a week. When I was a small child, 
and there were still people who spoke parts of it when I was in my early 20s to the point where when a friend came to stay and we ended up getting a taxi from um, the village to you know village to my parents house which as Madeline will tell you is well out into the middle of nowhere <laughs> um the guy was was talking in this mingled sort of ordinary speech and Dorset dialect um just a few dialect words thrown in with quite a strong Dorset accent my friend didn't know what they were saying at all genuinely couldn't understand what he was saying um because I'd grown up with it I did actually understand what was being said and wasn't even thinking about it as being a dialect but it's almost completely gone now, apart from the odd word mm-hmm. here and there. Yeah. Um, you know, and like it's not just in Dorset, obviously. No. You see that kind of across the countryside in very rural areas, just dialects, languages just being slowly erased. And we're only now actually trying to conserve some of them. I mean, there's been big movements in Cornwall, for example, to kind of really revive Cornish. Um, and we're seeing more movements in Ireland to to keep the Irish language alive. Obviously, there are certain par- parts of Ireland where it is still very much spoken, but there are other parts, particularly more towards the east, where um, it's not it's not the first language. Yeah. You know, English is the first language and um, kids are taught Irish in school but as a kind of a second language. Um, and yeah, it was just the scrubbing of, of rural life as these rural communities just stopped being able to survive in where they were and were forced into cities and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've talked before about my great-grandfather who was a horse leech, is what they, they mm. called it, um, and basically it was a Romany who went brick and um, he used to tend to all the plough horses and that but it, you know it's, it's still in my father's childhood um, the fields in Dorset were being ploughed by horses by teams of horses even mm. though tractors and things existed and combine harvesters and things existed it was still plough horse in Dorset so it, it adjusted yeah. comparatively late compared to other parts of the country and I suppose the link I would make here between losing the dialect and some of the, you know, the, the knowledge of the land and stuff is the industrialization of farming and the fact that largely it's unsustainable long term and mm. that losing some of that original connection to the land has been very detrimental in that respect. And we're trying to get back to it um, by supplementing this industrialized farming with mixed and rotational farming, which does actually renew the land at least. It's very difficult and obviously a very emotive subject, particularly for farmers. Yeah. Um, Jumping back onto... uh, Thomas Hardy. Just jumping onto Thomas Hardy's back. (laughs) Um, His novels were very successful. In fact, so successful that eventually he was actually able to give up his work as an architect and live in wealth and comfort off the proceedings. Which, again, I mean, (laughs) that's, that's... quite amazing really uh particularly given the fact that he didn't have you know natural wealth or anything like that to fall back on this was all wealth that he he built up himself with his books it it was kind of unprecedented it was i mean his father was working class and 
you know, his mother was a very well-educated working class and probably felt that she didn't fit in anywhere for most of her life, um, yeah. which is something that Hardy shared, obviously. He really, I mean, before you even get on to things like his political views and his views on, again, marriage and relationships and sex and stuff, he was completely, again, out of time. He was almost born in the wrong era. And I think, you know, we've all felt like that at certain points where we don't fit in, but he went through his entire life feeling like that. And it, it comes out, I think, in his work, this sense of alienation. Yeah, absolutely. Because there he is, he's he's born into a certain class. He is highly intelligent. He gets this step up and he does not, you know, on the one side, he belongs in this academic world. He belongs in this writing world. But that world was also owned pretty much by a whole other group of people who basically never accepted him, couldn't accept him because of the way that the system worked. Um, so he was not uh, he was not working class in some respects uh, because of where he had ended up and the wealth that he had but he was not gentry he was not this he was not the other uh, you know he, he just ended up being kind of alienated from all groups um and at the same time you have this sense of right well perhaps my identity lies with the earth lies in this countryside and look at how it is being also sequestered look at how it's being closed off destroyed taken over you know, um, and lost. So he was kind of isolated in every respect. Yeah, absolutely. And this really fed into, I mean, what I'm with levity calling Hardy's tangled love life, but I mean, it's more complicated than that, is the fact yes. that as a man who'd literally stepped up two social classes within two decades, three decades, yeah, um, he was expected to marry into the gentry. He had no idea how to behave with women of the gentry. He... He'd yeah. been a working class lad. He'd, you know, obviously had to make his way amongst the young gentlemen of Dorchester, etc., and then at university um, when they would let him in at all. But he did meet and marry uh, Emma Gifford, who, you know, the novel A Pair of Blue Eyes, that's kind of a homage to her and their courtship. And, you know, when she died, I think in 1912, he was absolutely devastated and went into a period of mourning. Um, I have to say, this did not stop Hardy from having several mistresses throughout his his life. Um, they, she, I think, was a properly reared young lady, a properly re young, properly reared young woman, the daughter of a gentleman kind of thing. Yeah. So she had no more idea how to behave with someone who came with far fewer illusions over life. Yeah. Uh, someone who was probably a lot more open about sex than the, your average Victorian gentleman was. Yeah. Um, and what possibly wanted, in her opinion, some delicacy on the subject, whereas he yeah. would have been used to the, the frankness you would get from the local farm lasses. And also the more even footing... I mean, if you if you look at his own background, you've, you've got his, you know, his father is working, his mother is educated, that there's clearly this even footing in terms of the household. Yeah. The father is not the one taking care of everything, you know. Uh, 
And so he comes. He then goes into a, a situation where he, he's married to a woman who, as we've just discussed earlier, um, has had everything, all responsibilities, stripped from her. Um, she is completely at at the mercy of Thomas Hardy. Um, she has no real rights um, in the way that actually people of the working class would have, because there wasn't all those that you know that tangled mess of property and money or things like that they were much more open to being able to marry for love being able to yes opportunity but you know for, for things to be easier um and for the relationship to be more even and that these two are coming into a, a marriage where neither of them are meeting you know eye to eye because they come from such massive social you know backgrounds and have different expectations of what a relationship should look like. Yeah, so there was, you know, as Madeline's quite aptly put there, there, there was that real issue and there wasn't an estrangement in the marriage at a certain point. We don't really know what that was because, you know, couples quite often don't really write detailed diary entries about what they're arguing about and whether it's whether it's anything to do with their sex life. But some of it might well have been because of this whole you know, not being able to talk to women of the, the gentry. Um, and a lot of Hardy's mistresses were actually his servants at one time or another, mm. including my great, great aunt Nellie, <laughs> who was Thomas Hardy's housekeeper. She uh, immigrated to England, um, sort of, it would have been in the wake, well, so, you know, a kind of decade and a half or so in the wake of the... Uh, the Great Hunger, mm. and obviously came to Dorset. This is this is how my grandmother ultimately ended up coming to Dorset because there was already a through line of immigration from that part nice. of Ireland through. So it's kind of like, yeah, that's quite a good place to go. It's still rural enough; you you won't feel completely out of your depth, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, anyway, she was Thomas Hardy's housekeeper, and they ended up involved together, and they were involved together for many years she did actually have a child by him um we thought this was family myth we genuinely did for many years it was kind of one of those things <laughs> as in oh yeah you're related to thomas hardy blah blah, blah. they were like oh yeah okay yeah sure on the wrong side of the blankets etc and then yeah. my grandmother died when i was 19 and she left what we kind of came to call the memory box although i don't think she called anything so sentimental um, which had lots of photos and letters and things in. My mother could not bear to open that box for around sort of 15 years. Mm. When she finally did get it down and open it, we found letters from Thomas Hardy to my aunt. Oh, my God. Saying that the enclosed amount of money, which obviously wasn't there because it had been long spent, was for the care of his natural daughter, a girl called uh, Elunid. I want to say Elunid, I think that's the Welsh form of the name. Anyway, um, and th there was a picture of a great-aunt Nelly with the child in her arms. And in the background, Thomas Hardy sat on his front porch. <laughs> that's amazing. So we're like, it's true, the family legend <laughs> is true. Um, weirdly, we were talking to my uncle's wife's family, and they said, wait a minute, are you talking about Elunid, as in that little girl from X with the with the slightly twisted foot and they happened to you know it's a completely different branch of the family opened up a box and went yes yeah, she went to school with our 
with our great aunt from so and so. I'm like, okay, so we've got two sources of information here that are both confirming this thing. But all I'm saying is that when people say that Thomas Hardy allegedly had all these affairs and things, he absolutely did because he was more comfortable with women of his own social class, his own original social class, and he couldn't yeah. quite ever get over that hurdle. And it, it, he, he was uncomfortable his entire life. And I kind of feel a bit sorry for him for that. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't belong somewhere until you decide you belong somewhere. But it's very hard to yeah. decide you belong somewhere when everyone keeps telling you how inferior you are and you're kind of basically a monkey wearing a wearing a funeral suit kind of thing. Yeah, and also when you are basically looking at the people who are kind of responsible for what you feel is the loss of, you know, um, connection with the land in which you were born and your way of life. <laughs> yeah. Now, part of his issue or part of his and Emma's, his wife's issues, came from the fact that his books started to really push the envelope in terms of social mores and conventions. There was Tess mm. of the D'Urbervilles, where he portrays a so-called inverted commas fallen woman quite sympathetically. There's been a lot yeah. of scholarly debate about whether Tess is actually raped or she's coerced or she knew what she was doing. For the purposes of this narrative, for the purposes of Thomas Hardy himself, it doesn't actually matter because what he's saying here is that a woman having sex outside of marriage does not is not wrong. She's not automatically yeah. evil or a harlot. Yeah. And people found that so unbelievably sort of difficult to swallow that the book yeah. became quite scandalous. Yeah, though of course the people who were finding it difficult to swallow were the people who were had access to it who were of a certain class yeah absolutely no one likes to see themselves reflected back in a book in such unsympathetic terms yeah now move on a few years and you get to jude the obscure um jude the obscure is so frank about sexual freedom and its disdain for the institution of marriage i mean jude and the main female character decide to live together without getting married and it scandalized the victorian public to the point yeah. where the archbishop of canterbury ordered a book burning <laughs> now allegedly thomas hardy said after this dear sir up until this point i have been plagued by this strange compulsion of writing but you have entirely cured me of the situation and allegedly that's why he never wrote any further novels i'm not sure it's that straightforward i think maybe he'd written novel wise what he wanted to write and he wanted to concentrate on his poetry after that yeah he certainly didn't need the money put it that way um but yeah jude the obscure was i think they you know the victorian gentry and the victorian aristocracy really took it as a slap in the face and yet it was yeah. incredibly well read. And the fact that the books were being burnt and people were trying to get it banned um, wasn't doing the sales any harm, as it were. Uh, I think yeah. Thomas Hardy did actually take offence at the idea of the book being banned because that went against everything he personally believed about people being able to articulate ideas and have discussions. Yeah. Though I think probably also it would have brought really to the fore something that he had always felt, something he'd always been suffering, which is that the people he was writing for, the majority of the people he was writing for, um, were not like him. Yeah, very much so. 
and were, in fact, not just not like him, they were so alienated from his experiences that a a frank discussion about the reality that all of them were pretending didn't exist caused a, a moral panic in them. <laughs> yeah. So the great irony is that Thomas Hardy, if he'd been born a hundred years before he'd been born, would have been more socially accepted. If he'd been born a hundred years after he was born, he would have been more socially accepted. He was born exactly yeah. the wrong time for him to have the opinions he had, to have the intelligence he had, and to mm. climb basically two social classes in his lifetime, which is basically unheard yeah. of. He was not a perfect person. He was definitely flawed. It's not okay to take advantage of your female servants, even if they are, you know, enthusiastically agreeing and get them pregnant. But I mean, he did actually provide for his illegitimate children. So there is that as well. Yeah. Um, And again, (laughs) the thing is, people might turn around and say, oh, but, you know, he was taking advantage of his servants and things like that because he was in a position of power. We don't know the situation, but certainly the way he then treated them and their children was much more on par with, you know, a a more even relationship than a lot of what we were seeing from other other people of the time. Yeah, I will say that great-great-auntie Nellie had her child and obviously could not raise the child entirely herself because she had a job, Um, had the child, went back to work for Thomas Hardy, so it wasn't like she was dismissed for getting pregnant, Um, and the child was put out for adoption but she stayed in contact with the adopting family and she saw the child at regular intervals she wasn't cut out of the child's life even though she wasn't technically the child's like mother in terms of raising the child again this was quite unusual but it makes me think that there may have been other circumstances where the individual was more sympathetic than the victorian society was at the time yeah yeah absolutely Okay, uh, let's finally go to our last uh, author. Um, And this is one that may be familiar to some people, particularly those who are are very, were very into the suddenly the sapphic movement that appears online a few years ago, where this name began to appear a lot. And it is the sequestered life of Emily Dickinson. Yes. Um, So we're leaving England, actually, um, because Emily Dickinson was born in 1830 in um, Amherst in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, which is such a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, during her life, um, only 10 of her huge body of poems, nearly 1,800 of them, were actually published. Now, despite being so little known in her lifetime, she is now regarded as one of the most important figures in American poetry. So even if you don't recognise the name, it's very likely that you will have seen or heard part of her poems. Yeah, definitely. And of course, if you have read any of her poems, uh, you might have been struck by several very unusual trends. Um... They tend to go against the fashion of the day uh, in terms of the structure, the meter, the rhythm and the the rhyming scheme. Um, So if compared with other things, you'll notice, oh, hang on a second, this is very, it almost feels very modern. 
Um, in fact, Dickinson seems to have delighted in using assonance to drive the verse rather than really using true rhyme. So again, I kind of understand why her form of poetry is so popular at the moment, because um, it kind of matches with the very popular poetic style being used by poets today. Yeah, definitely. Um, in addition to that, the imagery is quite odd. Emotionally, it's very effective, though contained in generally very simple words. Uh, for example, I'm out searching for myself with lanterns, which is a wonderful line if you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, very simple concept, but the, it, it contains so many layers of emotional resonance there. Um, yeah. But then they, they were often morbid in terms of motif, which you know we'll get into why in a moment. So yeah. while she may not have set the world on fire while she was alive, she absolutely broke the mould when it came to how modern poetry would progress, and in a way that was mm -hmm. far more unusual and, I would honestly argue, original than many of her contemporaries, including many yeah. better-known male poets of the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, now, uh, she had a bit of an interesting life. Um, she was often perceived as having lived a very quiet, retired and sequestered life and frankly that presentation has always kind of, well I mean I know it struck Jules as well but I mean it, it's also struck me as being overly simplistic if not potentially false. Yeah I, it particularly bugs me it's the same thing that I get about the Brontes and I'm like this is just not accurate um, where critics have gone on to suggest that Emily Dickinson and many others who are basically contemporary to her uh, was rather low-spirited and quite sad, uh, basically an old, spinter, spinster, an old spinster who never had the opportunity to marry, as if that was the most important thing. Yes. Um, now, there are a lot of problems with this image. Uh, first of all, the word, the word spinster was a very loaded term in the 18th century. You know, it had connotations of failure for almost all women who didn't marry. Um, spinsters were presented as pathetic, um, even pitiable creatures who lived half-lives without fulfilment. Um, unless, of course, they were very rich. Yeah. Now, we know that just wasn't true, and there's a number of factors to consider. So let's look mm -hmm. at logistics first. So certainly if you consider Victorian England... The census data tells us that there were 350,000 more women than men alive at that time, and many of the yeah. men were in the armed forces. Um, so even taking into account the appalling sex trafficking going on, especially in London, which I mentioned earlier, um, yeah. that's still too great a margin for everyone to have a chance of marrying. America, which yeah. had the Civil War right smack in the middle of the 1800s, had similar population inequalities. So, okay, so even then leaving logistics aside, we know for a fact that there were plenty of 19th century women who just didn't want to marry. They didn't want children, they wanted freedom and agency over their own lives, um, and there were also plenty of women who were not sexually attracted to men, who settled down in friendship couples, uh, who to all extents and purposes were married couples. <laughs> Yeah, and there were cases where two women did get married with one of them in dressing up to impersonate a man. In some cases, this may have been a, a, a trans man, in, but in many, many cases, it was simply two women. It was, we want to be married in the sight of God. We think this is right. One of us will 
don a man's clothes and pretend to be a man for the purposes of the occasion. Yeah, in fact, we even have sort of um, evidence that suggests that Mary Shelley actually helped two women escape to France to live as, quote-unquote, man and wife. Yes. Now, again, whether that was a trans man and a woman or whether it was uh, a lesbian couple, we don't know. But this is not a kind of a, a sort of a one-off reality. <laughs> this was something which was happening and was established. And it, it's worth mentioning that while there was, you know, certainly in the middle in the middle of the 19th century, severe penalties for two men who were caught in flagrante dilettante together, um, mm-hmm. women may not have faced the same punishment because women were expected to have young sweethearts amongst each other at a time and be more touchy-feely and affectionate with each other. Um, but women who wore men's clothes to appropriate a male's function in a, a marriage were definitely prosecuted. You don't bother to legislate for something unless it actually happens. So the fact that it, there's legislation that specifically pun- punishes lesbian couples doing this suggests that yeah. actually there are enough of them for legislation to be considered necessary. <laughs> yeah. And just to give you context... Uh, Queen Victoria didn't make any sort of laws or didn't sort of push any laws about two women being together because she literally just believed that it wasn't a you know she said that's not a thing it's not possible yeah it's not possible Um, (laughs) uh, now whether she was like she was aware of what some women did and just went that isn't the same it doesn't count or whether she literally just had no knowledge of it we don't know but the fact is that she basically having sort of known what some women's relationships were like basically said that's not possible and yet there was still this kind of this punishment of women dressing up as men so just to give you kind of a sense of context with that yeah so basically this idea that emily dickinson was denied the chance for full life by never having the opportunity to marry i think is a blinkered one it's far more likely that she just didn't want to yeah um (laughs) Uh, and of course, there is the whole thing, which was that she did appear to be involved in an intense sexual and romantic relationship with her brother's wife, Susan Gilbert. Um, you know, people go, oh, it's all speculative, but like, it's, uh, have really... you read the letters? Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's the same issue that we face with Charlotte Bronte, the same issue we face with Jane Austen, whereby a trusted confidant um, agreed to destroy the correspondence that was sent to them their correspondence on their death so we don't have as many sources as we would like um in in jane austen's case it's a little bit annoying because you know there are things there that it would be quite nice if we had the letters so we could clarify them um in charlotte bronte's case it's a bit annoying because we've only got ellen nussie's letters yeah but let's just say that it was a relative i say common common in the sense of if you had two women who wanted to be together who couldn't you know, theoretically be man and wife and didn't want to impersonate a man, etc. Um, which was, I think, punishable by severe fines, imprisonment, or in one case, hanging. Um, mm. What a lot of these couples did, if they had a brother that was amenable, was you married your female sweetheart to your brother, and then you carried on with her. Yeah. And it, you were keeping yes. it in the family. Um, it, and, it's, and the brother got to do whatever the brother was, go- was doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some cases it was a lavender marriage. In some cases it was the brother and sister just basically shared. 
And the brother always knew that, you know, his wife wasn't off having an affair with another man, which was a great comfort to him. And maybe he yeah. also had somebody else as well, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, certainly Ellen Nussie had this arrangement in, in mind with Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte Bronte was an incredible flirt. She may even had some bisexual leanings. Um, but in the end, uh, she had this strong desire to be mastered by a man, which you can see from, you know, the letters we do have of her. Um, yeah. And poor Ellen Nussie was not happy when Charlotte Bronte finally did get married. While we're on the subject of Victorian women who, you know, poor pathetic spinsters, blah, blah, blah. Charlotte Bronte was proposed to by four different men in her lifetime and she turned them all down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't that she didn't have the opportunity to marry. It's just that nobody who she really wanted proposed. Um, to be quite honest, in the end, she may well have decided that actually she liked Arthur Bell Nichols a lot more than she thought she had because her father told her not to marry him. <laughs> yeah. And it was something like on his fourth proposal to her that she finally said yes. Yeah. Again, you know, as we've talked about before, marriage in this particular case was also the giving up of everything that you you owned. Yes. You know, um, now depending on certain times or the certain positions or the... The relationship one had with the the men of the family and countries and stuff like that a spinster was more secure in ownership of everything than a than a married woman yeah she had more control over her assets her freedom than if she were to marry where she could have all of that taken away you are only slightly more secure if you're a widow but then you can't guarantee you're going to be a widow when you want to be Yes. without like resorting unless, to murder unless you help it yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you help things along a little bit um so going back to emily dickinson yes people say oh it's all speculative but if you read some of the letters she sent to susan gilbert um mm -hmm. let's see if i can find an example and i thought this genuinely have a little sort of like really we really think this wasn't a sexual relationship do we kind of thing Susie, will you indeed come home next Saturday and be my own again and kiss me? I hope for you so much and feel so eager for you. Feel that I cannot wait. Feel that I must have you. That the expectation once more to see your face again makes me hot and feverish and my heart beats so fast. My darling, so near I seem to you that I disdain this pen and wait for a warmer language. That's a mild one. Yeah. There are ones where she says she's written back to Susan and said... I opened the letter and then eagerly I licked the gum strip, basically, in order to find any taste of your lips upon it. Yeah, that's totally yeah. two chicks. They're just friends. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, they're, and, not, you know, they're... they're not doing anything else. <laughs> yeah. Now, there have been a lot of people who said, oh, well, you know, this is just dramatic of the era, but the... Yeah, uh, <laughs> the reality is is that if those two letters had been written between a man and a woman, most historians would have been like, well, clearly there's a love affair going on here. Um, whereas because it's between two women, they said, oh, times were different. People said different things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> now, maybe you're wondering where Emily Dickinson's brother was in all this. Well, Austin Dickinson and Susie Gilbert had a four-year courtship and then got married. And it became apparent quite quickly that they weren't really suited to each other. Um, it wasn't a terribly happy marriage, apparently, although they seem to have come to an accord because Austin seems to be aware that his wife and his sister were having some sort of affair de coeur. 
Um, yeah. He himself had a long-term lover by the name of Mabel Loomis Todd. And a lot of what we get about Emily Dickinson being quite sequestered and quite, and maybe even not a very nice person, and again about um, Susan Gilbert being, you know, this terrible wanton person who was really awful and was leading little Emily astray kind of thing, comes from Mabel Loomis Todd, who was quite jealous of her brother's sister, or her sister-in-law, and uh-huh. of her um, her rival, her her lover's wife. So th- there's this yeah. tangled little sort of love quad going on there. Yeah. And if she didn't understand the, you know, if she had any kind of leanings towards being against homosexuality, that would have also coloured how she interpreted the relationship. She couldn't speak badly of her sister-in-law. Yeah. But she could speak badly of her, you know, of her lover's wife, you know, talking about how she's wanton, how she's leading Emily astray, and how Emily is just a, a, a foolish, innocent girl, etc. Of course, we don't know all the details. We don't, and we we never will. Um, you can read between the lines all you like, and it, to me, it reads like there was a serious sexual romantic relationship going on between Susan and Emily. Um, yes. And, and if not sexual, then a very, a very intense emotional one. Yeah, definitely. Um, with <laughs> with Mabel Loomis Todd, she wasn't completely against Emily either, though, because both uh, Mabel and Susan were part of the literary set. Susan was a poet in her own right as well. Um, mm-hmm. And she was kind of like Emily's writing friend as well on top of that. So just proving that women will write smut to each other no matter what no matter what <laughs> era they're in if they're really close writing buddies um yeah Mabel did actually help Emily's first book of poems get published I believe it was after her death however yeah so it was it was complicated um the the one thing that I think a lot of people take away from Emily's her poetry is the presence of death and a lot of her poems are wrangling with life and death and working out you know you know, this brief candle of existence, does it does, does it mean anything at all? Does that little gleam mm. in the darkness mean anything? Um, and Emily formed quite intense friendships with people, it has to be said. Um, and she yeah. suffered a lot of loss early in her life, in her teens and very early 20s, and even in her childhood as well. And to the point where when she lost her second cousin, who was also her best friend, uh, to typhus, she went into a depression for quite a long time, which is perfectly yeah. understandable when you're grieving somebody. Um, and she never seems to have completely got past that. It all it, This sort of almost melancholy longing for death and to know where it leads is it, sort of in there in a lot of her poems. Yeah, but just because someone is depressed or has anxiety or is even uh, an introvert doesn't make them a poor sequestered spinster no it doesn't um you know we see a lot of complexity which has been kind of um pushed under the rug by certain narratives um and certain agendas um and again we don't know the absolute truth but we should be looking at the wider picture um and again i do think that the popularity and the enduring popularity of of Emily Dickinson in today's society is because her experiences, her fascination with death um, are very a touch on what a lot of young people, particularly queer young people, are experiencing it experiencing today. 
um, especially around the pandemic, uh, especially around times where lives are at risk or we're seeing wars and things like that. Um, her poetry speaks to people um, and also the nihilism and, and the despair and the pessimism that a lot of people feel. But you would not basically just say, right, well, that's everything and they're the only part of their identity. We're all complex beings. Yeah, absolutely. And it has to be said that she seems, Emily Dickinson, that is, she seems to have had quite a savour for the Gothic. Um, she was yeah. quite heavily influenced by Jane Eyre. You know, she had nothing to do with Charlotte Bronte, really. Um, but Jane Eyre and some of the questions it posed really captured her imagination and sort of creeps into her poetry as well. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I would argue that, yeah, perhaps she was a bit of an introvert. Perhaps she had a bit of... She had some fear about going to attach to too many people because so many people in her life had died, had been taken from her, and she formed very intense bonds with people. Um, that's all perfectly understandable. I would argue she had an incredibly rich and picturesque inner life, which many introverts mm. do. And the fact that they don't want to go out can be a, a, a reflection of the fact that there's so much going on upstairs, there's so much going on internally that they don't really need it. They don't feel the need for lots of people. In fact, it's wearying to them. I have to say, when people have said to me in the past, you're very quiet, and I'm thinking, no, I'm not. And the thing is, technically, I am being quiet, mm. but I'm not quiet inside. My head is really loud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um and frankly, also looking at a lot of the experiences and things and the way that Emily Dickinson looked at things, again, we can't know, but I, I look at her and I'm like, to be honest, she sounds like someone who's neurodivergent. Yeah. She she sounds like, you know, some of these things are typical neurodivergent, particularly um, ADD kind of stuff in terms of being introverted, in terms of kind of the intensity of relationships, the swinging of of kind of moods particularly into dark moods but also pure elation and stuff like that um i just think that's reflected in her poetry but again as we talked about earlier on every time i read something i'm going to be skewered by the bias of my own experiences so there we go yes and that's it for today. Those were our four authors and the, the mysteries and the strangeness of their lives. Um, once again, just remember, we are posing facts as we know them and forming conclusions based on this and our own opinions. So um, if you know something that we don't or that we didn't mention here, please do let us know. We are always interested to find out more and to, to find out what you guys think. Definitely. Uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week, and I do have one for you. Now, this is not a new book by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but it's one which um, I have only just gotten to uh, per uh, Jules's recommendation. Well, actually, no, it wasn't per your recommendation. I think you talked about it a while ago. Probably with excitement. knowing me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I said, oh, I'm listening to this, and, and Jules immediately went, <laughs> um, yeah, and we had we had a really good time of it. Um, I decided to pick up some Terry Pratchett, um, and I listened to Going Postal um, on Audible, and I absolutely adored it. Um, I think it's a very topical book 
for the moment, particularly with large companies like Amazon and, and whatnot kind of looming over. Um, it is a kind of a sort of examination of the industrial revolution, but very reflective of today as well. And uh, to be fair, as the other thing that really attracted me towards it is the main character, Moist von Litwick, uh, is a con man. And so for my poor little heart, which has been eagerly waiting for the next Locke Lamora book uh, for a while, um, I was like, ooh, a con man. And I, I got basically the best of all worlds when it came to going postal. Terry Pratchett's remarkable sense of humour, his use of absurdism um, and poignant reflection um, and world building and characterization just fantastic and the performance was excellent as well little sort of um touches with bill nye too and for those who've seen the series going postal the guy who's narrating the book is the guy who played moist von litvig i've discovered um so that is a great little bit of a crossover uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I've fallen in love with the series. I'm going to start the second book soon, and I highly recommend it for anyone who's looking for a good audiobook or just a good book to dive into. Awesome. Well, I, I feel like going back and rereading it now, to be honest. <laughs> I really love Everyone's like, why, do, why is Moist one of your favourite characters? And it's just like, he's brilliant. I love the books he's in. I've even had really yeah. ardent Terry Pratchett fans tell me I'm wrong. But um, no, I defy you all. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got to say Moist is probably up there at my favourite Terry Pratchett character, along with Death, to be fair. Yeah. And on that note, guys, we will say thank you very much for listening and we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.